All right, Blad. Blad. All right, Blad. <laughs> Fucking hell. When Arsenal knocks on the door of players, it's a different knock than other clubs. Maybe we'll have a good surprise for you. That's Vieira! And it's Bradley Adams through on goal. Welcome back to the Different Knock Podcast, episode number... Oh, fucking hell. Welcome back to the Different Knock Podcast, episode number 53, with Alexander Moneypenny and the jack-of-all-trades, Paul Jewell. <laughs> Who the fuck does Paul Jewell manage? Paul Jewell, he was the Wigan manager years ago. Do you remember him? He's like the ultimate Brexit manager. Oh, God. Bradley Adams. There. Bradley Adams, That's there me. you go. Me and Brad have embarrassingly <laughs> turned up in the same same top today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'll be seeing this on TikTok. Oh yes, here we are. We're in the 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 bear the bear attack Arsenal away away strip. How are you, Brad? I I do really like this top though. I think it's quite nice. It is nice. It is nice. How are you, mate? This in the um the third kit, the third the the blue one which I've got over there drying. I I love like Adidas have done a great job this year. I have to Adidas, say, Adidas do smash it. How are you, Brad? I'm hyping the merch. Oh, I'm good, thanks, mate. I'm good. Sorry, just just fucking skirting your questions. <laughs> good, good stuff. Uh, I'm sorry this is so late. By the way, I was up till three a.m. watching GeoGuessr. Have you come across GeoGuessr? Yes, I have. Well, I've come across some clips on like TikTok. I absolutely love it. I mean, it's insane. It's fucking, if you like how these people do it. Listeners, if you haven't come across this, it's essentially a game. It's sort of like a Google Street View game where you get dropped. So you can choose any, you could choose like the USA or the UK or whatever, but you can choose any location in the world. So you choose the world, right? And it drops you just somewhere randomly. And there's a few people online who are obscenely good at this game. There's a guy called GeoWizard. By the way, who I don't even think is the best. I think there's another guy called like Granis or something. And he, he gets this, this, this is clip where he gets dropped on a street and it's like i think it's it ends up being like it's like a bridge in montenegro and he literally drops on the bridge he goes okay well i'm near a river near a stream looks at where the sun is he goes okay we're in montenegro because the because that's a yellow street sign and there's only those in montenegro and he's like okay that's that it's um, I, and then he and then he gets to within 5 yards of where he is on a bridge in montenegro how the fuck do you, My- he, i don't think he'd even been there like what the fuck? It's insane. Another one where he's like in Ghana and he's like, oh, oh, there's a there's a patchwork car and I can see a, a church and I and that sounds like a Ghanaian church and it, and he found it, found the street. It's insane, mate. That is so good. Honestly, there's one clip of this though that popped up on TikTok and it's fucking hilarious, right? He's dropped in and this guy has got nothing but like a bit of desert. And then like maybe some, I think it might maybe some houses. I don't know. But the, I just remember the clip because there's a couple of like guys in front of him and he goes, oh, do you know what? I think, I think he looks a bit Egyptian and then turns around and one of the fucking great pyramids is behind okay. him. <laughs> <laughs> so he literally goes like, oh yeah, this guy looks Egyptian, turns around, there's just a fucking massive pyramid behind them. <laughs> bit, of, bit of a clue. <laughs> uh, right. Well, there's no football this oh. week. Uh, well, not this week, as in there's no midweek football, no Europa League. Um, everyone's catching up on their fixtures. Um, have you watched any of the football? What have you done to survive the drought? Have you been watching any other matches or? No, I, I'm i a bit of a, I don't really watch much football outside of Arsenal. Like I, I'll watch like a, you know, a big Super Sunday. But uh, to be honest, I, I kind of stay clear. Apart from the Champions League, I do, I do, I love a bit of Champions League. I love a Champions have you watched League. Any, I love a Champions League. Have you watched, have you watched any? I watched the Lyon match. But them and Wren, I can't remember if it was last night or the night before. Days are blurring into one. Hashtag lockdown three. We're not going to be out of it till October. Um, <laughs> just for that cheery little moment on a on a on a Thursday morning. Um, yeah, no. I, so I will watch a little bit here and there. It depends if I've got something else to watch. If I'm watching a TV show, I'll probably just watch that. Yeah. But like, if I've got nothing else to watch or I don't want to watch what I'm currently watching, because like we were saying before this, Alex is currently rewatching Breaking Bad. Sometimes, like. When you're watching something that's quite heavy, you just don't want to watch it. Yeah, I've <laughs> me and my partner alternate between Breaking Bad and Bake Off, just because it's like the most. I mean, the most I dramatic. Thing, I fucking the most that. dramatic thing that happens on Bake Off is like they drop the cake. I love it. It's so good. And there's none of this bullshit of like, 
you know, oh, I'm so me, me mum's got an illness and my dad's run away and I don't have a sports car. Oh, pray for me. They don't do any of that. It's great. <laughs> it's so good. They're just like, here's my mum. She likes baking. She likes I cakes. like baking. You like baking. Let's bake. <laughs> Look at this cake. Also, if you haven't seen The Great British Break Off, Paul Hollywood is, ah, oh, he's so good at his job. I just love people who know their fucking shit, which is ironic considering the state of some of the conversations on this podcast. But the, the you know, the, like, the, the fact that football, he just, but... yeah, <laughs> the fact that he, he could literally be like, he like looks at your bread and he's like, you, you didn't roll that out for long enough. How the fuck do you know that? How the fuck do you know you haven't proved it for long enough? It's insane. I suppose he's a baker, so in fairness, if anyone's going to know. Anyway, enough fucking chit-chat. So today there's no football, so we're going to get on with some... Uh, rambly bollocks. Exactly. We're going to get on with some uh, some talking points. We've got some lovely talking points lined mm. up. So if, uh, again, this is going to be Brad's worst nightmare, we've got to stick to one topic. Um, Tangents FC can't, uh, can't rear its ugly head, although I'm sure it will. Uh, <coughs> Bruno Fernandes will be mentioned somehow. Uh, <laughs> we'll get him in somehow. Uh, you ready to go with the first one? Talking point number one, Lone Watch. Yeah, lads. So we're going to do a teeny little bit of a, a Lone Watch today. Um, just to kind of some parameters. Uh, me and Alex decided there's no point doing anyone in January. Because again, if they went out on like the 31st, they've only had a month at their new clubs. There's not going to be enough data. And even if they went out on the 1st, it's kind of two months. That's going to be a more a more appropriate time to assess that loan is going to be at the end when there's like a significant amount of games that you can judge by. Uh, then also the kind of two players uh, I've decided to focus on is Torreira and Guendouzi. I think a shout out should be given to Mavropanos at Stuttgart, who's been performing really, really well. Um, and so Stuttgart... But unfortunately, in my opinion, with the returning of Saliba and how stacked we are at centre-back, I just think he's cannon fodder that's probably going to get sold in the summer to a German league club. I don't know how you feel about that, Alex, but it kind of felt a bit futile to kind of look at that. I, I'd i be interested. I mean, uh, personally, I don't necessarily agree. I think really? Mavropanos might be a surprise candidate. I mean, he's doing really well at, at Stuttgart. They really like him. I know Arteta said in his press conference yesterday that... Right, I'll get some, um, I'll get some stats up. Uh, I know Arteta said in his press conference that he's um, he's monitoring and he's having conversations with him and Ben Napper, obviously the loan manager and stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I think my, I, I, what I would say is I think a lot of Arsenal fans are going to write him off as a, yeah. well, he, he'll just go out and he'll, you know, we'll sell him in the summer. And we, you know, the most likely outcome is, is that. But I don't think... Yeah, I think we should we should have a little look at him because he's he's interesting. All right, all right, I'll I'll, I'll get him up. I'm then. Standing up for Mavro. You're standing up for Mavro. I'll get him up and we'll have a look at just the base stats that are on here. I'll get him up on who scored as well. But I, the main um, kind of position that I've looked at is Torreira and uh, Guendouzi in the centre midfield, uh, and the kind of the uh, barometer that I've used to measure their success by is El Neni. Uh, because I think it's interesting that we've sent out these two players on loan and kept a player like Elneny. So I've kind of I've got some of all three of their stats, and um, I think the best place to start is probably Torreira. We'll kind of do a, a 360 and come back to Mavro at the end because I don't think there's really a lot to compare him to because most of our centre backs are absolute dog water. I mean, and by that I mean David Luiz is not very good. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Torreira. He's only played uh, just under 400 minutes this season, which is really poor. So he's made 14 appearances, scored one goal. uh, And in those, he's only started three matches and he's been subbed on in 11. Uh, He's currently clocking up about 0.4 tackles a game, 0.4 fouls committed, 0.8 interceptions, 0.4 clearances, 0.2 blocks, 0.2 key passes um 0.8 fouls one Torreira is a really difficult one to look at because there just isn't enough data and when you compare that to El Neni for example who has made 15 appearances and clocked up over a thousand minutes it's difficult to say whether Arteta's decision is vindicated 
in keeping El Nenny while sending Torreira out on loan because they've played chalk and cheese in the amount of minutes in that sense. I think this has been a really disappointing loan for Torreira. Um, and obviously I don't, I think that because of like player limit restrictions, it's not like we could cancel the loan and bring him back into the squad in January. Um, but this seems to have been a very, very wasted year. And it it just is going to depreciate the asset come the summer. Yeah, I, I suppose there's some value in it in that, you know, he's in, he's part of a Atletico team, which is, you know, challenging for the title and challenging in Europe and stuff. And, and, you know, I think being in and around that squad is always a good experience. And, you know, being in and around the likes of, you know, Luis Suarez and, 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 and you know, Coke and all, all their, you know, they're sort of their best players. I think is always a good, it's always good, especially as he, you know, and Torreira is quite a young player. It's probably quite a good experience to have. I think what's strange is you're right, like the El Neni thing. I mean, let's take out of the equation, it's hard to, but let's take out of the equation the idea that, you know, El Neni maybe didn't have any suitors. Because, you know, I don't believe we got him out to, was it Perseksha here? Last night, wasn't it? It was some, um, who did he go to last Besiktas. year? Besiktas. Besiktas, sorry. Uh, went out to Besiktas. Um, year before so you know maybe and I, I don't know I think they had some problems paying wages and stuff so I don't know but I, I imagine you know it's not as if Mohamed El Nani yeah is they didn't be, pay him from like February onwards I think. yeah it's, it's not as if El Nani is going to be crazy hard to shift like he's not some like awful youth player that we you know we're just trying to shift out he's an experienced Egyptian international like I'm sure I'm sure there'd be a club to get him out to so it is we could get seven and a half million pounds for well maybe but I mean easily. we can we can like, speculate or over, if, even if we even if we just loaned him again we could we could get we could have moved him on rather than Torreira. Maybe we we can speculate over buyers, but like I think you know, because I think a buy is especially in this in this climate is difficult. But loans were were a big thing, like in the in the in the summer and, and in January. And yeah, I think you're right. It it does seem a strange decision because you know El Neni essentially does that. You know, sitting on that right hand side alongside Jacker sometimes you know, recycling the ball, chasing it down. You know, he's not he's not a particularly bad player at all. Um, I just think, I think you're right. You know, why, why if that was going to be his role this season, I mean, the question is maybe more that Torreira expected or wanted and has higher expectations to, to play every first team minute. Um, and maybe that was the decision but to again, be made. He's played 400 exactly, minutes. Exactly. So, so clearly, clearly there's, there's something that's gone on here where expectations haven't been met somewhere. Um, you know, and you thought, especially with Party coming the other way, you wondered whether Torreira would be in line for more minutes there. But but yeah, it, it, it's strange. I mean, also those stats, like, don't sound great. <laughs> like, it doesn't sound like he's absolutely changed the world there. No, they're really not. They're, they're really not. But I think the issue is, is it's hard to... It's because he's only played um, 400 minutes. And if you do that, let me just work it out. Let me get a calculator. He's only for, for the 14 appearances that he's made. He's averaging 27 minutes per game. The issue with that is, is this is where stats can be very deceiving because Torreira is obviously better than his stats when used in the right system. The issue is, is it will take it what it what, what these stats are is an amalgamation of every single tackle he's made versus every appearance that he's made. It becomes a really difficult. This is what I mean by it. this is a really really hard one to judge as to whether Arteta's decision to send Torreira out on loan versus somebody like El Neni is is kind of vindicated in the sense that. We really just don't know because we don't we don't have a large enough data pool and we don't have a consistent enough data pool to to make that kind of decision or assumption. This will have been a massively disappointing year for Lucas. And I don't really know how moving forward his future will go, whether it's Arsenal or another club. But yeah, there's some discussion about whether, you know, he may potentially be going to Sampdoria or Fiorentina's mm. discussions, him going back to Serie A. But yeah, I think you're right. Like, it's a, it's a, well, first, it's a difficult 
time to assess him on the football pitch yeah because of that but then you can also then go okay so then then if we can't assess him on the football pitch then we've got to assess the deal and i think the deal isn't really working out and it's probably no. not right and if I, th- I imagine if we could go back and send him out to a you know a club you know i, I rate Torreira, and i think he he has certain qualities in the as you say in the right system that that work him out he's you know he's low to the ground he's got a nice nice bit of pace about him he's he's committed um, you know he can he can pass. He's all right. You know in terms of like technically, I just wonder whether in a, in a slightly in a league like the Spanish league, especially playing for a team like Atletico, you know it might have been all right, but for like a lower down team or something like that, you know, I think Torreira could really be the gem in a side like you know like a Hetafe or somewhere like that, you know, like some somewhere where he can be appreciated and be play every single game. Like well, before we before we bought him and he was great for the kind of Uruguay Uruguayan national team. But it, it just feels like a huge risk to send him to an Atletico. I don't know. I, don't, I just don't rate the deal. Okay, so moving on to Matteo Guendouzi. He seems to be doing a little bit better at Hertha Berlin. Yeah, um uh, some quotes from the first Hertha Berlin manager who has now lost his job. Um, said that um, uh, when, uh, when he came here to Germany, he had to go into quarantine. I don't know what happened. Either he or somebody else tested positive. So he had to sit in the hotel for two weeks. He was so professional. We brought him some gear, uh, a bike to work on, and he was really, really ambitious to get on the field as soon as possible. And every day he shows in practice what a great player he is. Uh, and I think... There's, there's since been some fractions with a new manager. There was um, a heated argument between him and another one of Berlin's players, uh, Matthias Cunha. But I think it's kind of borne out in the stats in that uh, I've got both Guendouzi's statistics from last season in the Premier League and this season. And he's committed less fouls. He's got less yellow cards. Uh, he got six yellows last season to three this season. Um, he's averaging roughly the same amount of um, passes. He's got uh, 2.7 long balls a game, roughly about kind of 45 passes a game, uh, which is slightly down. Uh, but the pa- pass percentage has gone up to around 88%. He's still co- um, got about one tackle a game, an interception a game committing around a foul a game, but he's winning something like roughly two fouls a game. Uh, 0.7 key passes per game for a central midfielder is pretty good. Um, And he's got two goals and assist. Uh, He's made 18 appearances, about 1,400 minutes. And he is another one that is kind of interesting on the basis of I think when a lot of people have the conversation of, well, why did we loan Guendouzi out versus keeping El Nenny? Because I think obviously a lot of people see Guendouzi being uh, a lot um, kind of a higher quality of footballer. And obviously, if you take out the kind of uh, discipline issues and just look at it on a kind of case by case player player quality, they're roughly um, putting out about the same. Uh, defensive numbers, you know, and then he's got a clearance and an interception a game, roughly making between kind of 0.8 to one tackle a game. Uh, only committed five fouls, got two yellow cards, uh, but only 0.09 blocks, whereas Guendouzi's about 0.3. Uh, Guendouzi dribbles more. Uh, he dispossesses, he's dispossessed less, uh, tries more long balls. Um, for example, uh, this season, El Nenny has 27 accurate long balls, whereas Guendouzi has about 70. Um, so even player profile-wise, it's this is a very interesting one because obviously they're very they're two very very different types of players. You know, El Nenny is the one to sit and press, and I don't have their pressing numbers, um, but uh, whereas Guendouzi obviously dribbles more, passes more, is a bit more creative. But I think it's a really kind of interesting discussion to have that we, and this is in a, in, you know, a perfect world where we take away his disciplinary issues and take away the fact that we've sent him out to Germany to kind of learn a bit more discipline, a bit more positional discipline and and things like that. But it's really interesting to see that a player that we've kept to kind of sit and marshal in front of the defence is 
barely even putting the, like just about putting the same numbers as a guy, obviously in a lesser division, but uh, and and in a less possession heavy side. So obviously, uh, statistics tend to favour. Uh, defensively, if you're on a side that is less possession heavy, because you have to make more tackles, have to make more blocks, have to make more interceptions because you're constantly chasing the ball. Uh, but I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. The fact that, you know, we've obviously kept this player. And th- this again, I, I think it's really difficult to have these kind of conversations because me and you and everyone listening obviously knows that the reason that we sent out Gwenduzi is is the di- the discipline and the kind of learning a bit of humility and all of these things. But yeah, I'll pass over to you, my friend. So what do you think? Yeah, or certainly, or certainly part of it. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting interesting one because I think the perception of Gwendozi is this guy who is a bit of a headless chicken and maybe offers us, you know, is has a I think in the sort of dark days in the Unai Emery era, he was a bit of a light in that he would progress the ball, he would come out, he would have a bit about him, he would you know you know someone who wasn't just trying to play this kind of rigid defensive at times and the kind of un- unorganized brand of football that Emery was, was trying to play and, or certainly, you know, maybe not getting his messages through to the players. And I think when was someone who kind of just stuck, stuck, stuck out like a sore thumb in that because he was someone who wasn't interested in playing the system. He wasn't interested. He was interested in playing his football. Now that's a, um, a mistake on Gwendozi's part and I'm not trying to defend that. But what I am saying is I think it's interesting that that's the perception we all have of him as Arsenal fans. And obviously, it's difficult to compare numbers. He's obviously in a Hertha Berlin team, which are going to be defending more. <clears throat> but the thing is, is and he, it, you know, the he... thing is as well to kind of cut you off. But the thing is, is in an, in, in Unai Emery's world, that's brilliant because we needed somebody to go against what Unai Emery was saying and progress the ball, be a bit more attacking. In Arteta's system, where we are already trying to create more, trying to attack more, the positional awareness is a is a big thing. And yeah. we, whilst, you know, progression of the ball is brilliant, we need you to do it in a way and when told to rather than for the sake of it. And I think m- maybe that's why, you know, that's why we loved Gwenduzi and then hated him at the, um, within the space of kind of, or why, I don't, I don't think the Arsenal fans ever hated him. I think it's more like why one manager... And there was a lot of kind of hype around him and success around him because he was that light and he was that person that was breaking the mould of what the manager was trying to do, but in a good way. And then putting him in a kind of system where he needed to be a bit more positionally structured. After having the freedom, you know, he's played something like nearly 60 or 70 games in the league for us. And after having the freedom to do that under Emery for so long, I think that, the adjustment period to to being a bit more structured under Arteta was probably just a bit um, poor, but also difficult for him. Once you're used to playing a certain way, you're going to want to play that way. And especially when you've gotten a lot of plaudits and people are talking about you as an 80 million pound prospect who could go to PSG for 70 million quid. So also in Arteta's system, it doesn't quite suit Guendouzi's style of progressive football through the middle. Like the, the idea that, we, we, you know, we tend to progress up the wings and play those kind of wall passes off off Bellerin and off off Tierney on the sides, uh, because most teams, you know, pack the midfield against us because they know we can hurt we can hurt them through the middle. We have Smith Rowe, we have Erdegaard, we have Party. Those players are technically really proficient. They're going to pack the midfield against us. They're going to sit in a low block. Guendouzi would get physically, you know, blocks off in what he wants to do, which is move through that midfield with that ball and play spraying passes and stuff. So I understand the idea of Al Nenny, someone who can recycle, play it out, you know sort of play out wide I don't think he quite fits in that system but what is interesting is he appears to have found a bit of positional discipline if he's consistently getting in that Hertha Berlin team he's obviously doing something right in training he's obviously impressing his manager you know I think regardless this is you know if we're going to compare it to the Torreira loan move this is something that has raised his profile and has probably helped him because he you know he's still a young French midfielder there's a high stock of those at the moment in terms of how the French national team are doing He's a, you know, he's a, he's a big prospect. I think he won't end up fitting into Arteta's system long term. I don't think he's positionally. Um, I don't think he'll ever be. His his style of game isn't ever going to be positionally um, astute enough for Arteta. And I don't think Arteta likes his, that sort of character in a, in a team. Someone who is a bit of a maverick. Someone who is a bit of a um, fuck you. I'll do what I want. Like I don't think that's Arteta's style. But what this can do is raise his profile. 
And I wonder whether, you know, say we might have got, if we'd kept him around, you know, I'm, I'm glad he went out on loan because if we kept him around, he hadn't played, he might have gone for 25, 30 million in January. But if we, you know, hopefully he comes back from this this loan, maybe even get some games at the beginning of next season and he goes out for, you know, 60, 70, because I think that's, and that's great business. You know, think of what we got him mm-hmm. for. It's, yeah, I don't and- think every player needs to work out and every player needs no. to be absolutely correct for every system. Like ultimately Arteta didn't sign this player and therefore if he goes, but we get good money for him, I'm happy. We're, well, everyone's happy all around. Yeah, agreed, mate. Um Maybe there is an opportunity if he has learned a bit more positional discipline. Because one one thing we do lack is progression through the centre, and I think that that's uh, like you say, it is a it is a style of play issue. But I do think it's also a lack of um, quality of progressors in the centre of the park. You know, party uh, party and Jacker. Um, no, not I mean, party does a fair amount of progression, but Jacker doesn't. Uh, El Neni doesn't. But what I'm thinking is moving forward, uh, it's my opinion that we shouldn't sign Ceballos on a permanent. And I don't think El Neni, I don't, again, I don't think he's of the technical quality to play for us. So I don't think he should be here next year. So I think we should be looking to tie Gwenduzi down to a new deal. Um, again, protect the asset rather than, because I think he's only got two years left on his contract or maybe even a year come this summer. Um, I think it's, again, a, a situation of protecting the asset and going, okay, well, we might not want you long, long term for the next five to 10 years, but let's give you a new five-year contract on uh, you know, a bumper deal. You get a decent amount of money. And then next season, we bring him in to play a role in that central midfield. Because uh, I still think we need to buy one. I think maybe... If you're if we're playing a four two three one, which seems to be really successful for us moving forward, and we have those two kind of pivot slots uh, at kind of six and eight, I think you probably need four players over the course of a season that can play there. And we've got Party, we've got Xhaka, we shouldn't have Sabios and El Neni come next season. So bringing Gwenduzi back in for twelve months, giving him a new contract. And signing, you know, somebody who who fits the profile of either kind of a more physically dominant, defensive-minded kind of 6-8 or even, you know, an attack-minded 8-10, depending on what other positions we strengthen, wouldn't be the worst idea. Giving him some more minutes in the Premier League, in other cup competitions, at, you know, one of the biggest clubs in the country, again, I think all it does is raises his profile. And because of his contract situation, I think that if we sell him come this summer, we won't be getting kind of the 60, 70 million pound move that was talked about when he was first breaking through under Unai Emery. But if we give him a new contract, bring him back in, we could probably turn the 30 million pound we'll get for him this summer into maybe 40. And I think for 12 months, that would be smart business. You know, keeping him for 12 months, giving him a new deal, and then maybe next summer, kind of the summer after next, moving him on. And bringing in another central midfielder who fits the profile of what we want to do going forward. Uh, And I do think he has the quality to be kind of an elite level central midfielder. I just think he doesn't fit the system that we're currently playing. I don't know if he will ever be able to mature or evolve into a player that fits into that system. Because if, if he could... That would be brilliant, you know. He he's got great numbers when it comes to long balls per game. When it comes to his defensive acumen for kind of a more free roam eight is is good, and his attacking numbers are also pretty pretty decent. So I do think he has the quality, and maybe if he could learn to be a bit more positionally aware, there could be a real place in our side going forward for him, kind of being that third option, that rotation option, almost being the. NBA sixth man of our midfield. I just don't think letting him go this summer and not giving him a new contract before we do is bad business for us. Because I am just going to check it to be 100% sure. But I am pretty sure from, I should have written this down from last, uh, from the research I did, but I'm pretty sure his contract either ends um, next uh, in 2022 or in 2023. Um, so if it's 2022, you're talking about at the end of this season, he comes back and he has 
a year left on his deal and we barely get the money that he's worth. Yeah, his contract expires. Contract expires. Oh, no. Contract expires this... Wait, oh, no, that's that. Oh, 2022. His contract expires June 30th, 2022. So he's got a year left on his deal. It would be smart for us to, even if we don't want him moving forward, to just time down to a new contract because we'll just get more money for him moving forward. And that's the kind of things that we need to be doing. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, So just on Mavropanos then, um, yeah, I think it's worth having a look at him because I think he's he's someone who's a bit of a dark horse and he's doing well in the Bundesliga. He was in, you know, the second Bundesliga or the Bundesliga 2, where it was called, um, last season with Nuremberg and he did well there. He's made this step up, gone to Stuttgart and they, I think they call him like his war- their warrior or something. They're, they're, they're big fans yeah. of him. What's he looking I like stat-wise? Stat-wise, uh, I've just got them up here. He's played about 800 minutes, um, about 12, about 10 appearances, two as a sub. He's making about 2.6 tackles per game and 3.1 interceptions, which is very good. You know, um, well over five defensive actions per game is is great, as, as well as 3.2 clearances and 0.4 blocks. So statistically, as a centre-back, he's performing very, he's performing very well. Like he's doing a very, very good job. Passing-wise, he's got about a 77% um, pass act, which, you know, for a ball playing system like ours isn't great. You want that being in kind of the 80s or a kind of 85 mark, but isn't the end of the world. But he's a bit of a whack it out yeah, and just get it out. Not, you know I mean? He's not, um, he needs to be next to a Gabriel type player or next to a, um, who, or a David Luiz, who is a, who, who is a ball playing center back. He's not that. He is your traditional, um, just, smack it into Rosehead centre-back. But surprisingly, he's trying about 3.1 long balls per game, which is very good for a non-ball-playing centre-back. And, you know, Stuttgart themselves have been very, very good this season. And, you know, he's been very strong in aerial duels. Um, He... It's somebody that I think, you know, we were having a conversation pre this and that we'll come on to later, but he's somebody with a lot of physical presence, which is something that I think that sometimes Arsenal lack, especially at set pieces and in other areas of the game. So maybe, I think Mavropanos is one, almost like Gwenduzi, well, almost like all of them, and that's why they're out on loan. All of their futures at the club massively predicate on what we do in the transfer market. If we go out, if we bring Saliba back in and we let uh, David Luiz go out um, at the end of his contract, and we've got then Gabriel and Pablo Mari, we've also got Omar Rekic, who could be moving through depending on how his progression is. You know, he absolutely could come in and be um, kind of a fourth, fifth choice centre-back. But is that kind of value for money when he's got, um, his deal expires the same as um, in 2023. So at the end of the season, he's got two years left on his deal. For me, uh, while I think he's performing very, very well, maybe it's the time to move him on in the sense that if our long-term future is with Saliba at right centre-back, we've already got Rob Holding. And depending on what happens with this um, talk around David Luiz's new contract, having another right-sided centre-back who is then fifth choice. I think he's built up some market value this season and maybe because of that, it's the right time to move him on. I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, I I think it's, it's an astute thing to say around like the partner to Gabriel. I think Gabriel feels like the long-term. Um, it's interesting, almost like we've got Gabriel and Party who are the two bits of the puzzle for the next couple of seasons and who's going to partner them. They're the two things to look at in this transfer window and go, okay, how are we going to fill those two slots? I think um, for me, I think we do miss a bit of physical presence. I think we something we won't get onto today just because of time uh, is the fullback slot and you know who potentially might be replacing Bellerin. And I, I would look for someone with a bit more physical presence. We've got quite small centre-back, uh, uh, fullbacks at the moment. Tierney, you know, none of them, none of them come over six foot. Someone like Nordi Mukieli is, you know, six foot two, looks like a good prospect. I think the 
the idea that we need someone with a bit of physical presence is good. You know, Saliba again, you know, six foot six foot four, um, and, and I think Mavropanos is, is around that height, and that's important to me. I think, you know, Mavropanos in terms of play style, you know, he's a bit of a clearance merchant he's a bit of a block merchant he just loves he's a bit you know he's kind of an old school loves defending kind of you know as they say in the commentary that you know or he loves defending um and i think he he he's he's not a bad option yeah, socrates celebrates yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a socrates like the ball and, out and stuff like that exactly and and i think he you know he, he's certainly not to be sniffed at and i think if we are smart about it i mean i don't know when his deal ends it may well be a choice, uh, a situation of you know a choice between him and Callum Chambers, or maybe even him and Rob Holding. I don't know. Um, we've got a lot of centre backs, and I think what we can do is it's almost you know playing, not playing them off against each other, but kind of you know Arsenal wins if all of these guys are performing at a, a top top level and can go for good money, and if we protect the assets. So I think with Mavropanos, it's it's definitely a a a, a thing to be looking at and going okay. This is someone who we can make some good money out of. And again, it's another good bit of business. You know, similar to Guendouzi, we've picked up someone from the like Greek second division or whatever it was. I can't remember what it was. And, you know, for not very much amount of money. And he's come in. He's, you know, he's kind of been in the background for a bit. P.A.S. Gianna. Yeah, exactly. There. Um, <laughs> you know, he's come in and he's he's done really well and 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 considering you know i think he's still quite young um yeah i just i just think it's an interesting oh i'm seeing a man in a arsenal training kit outside my man um love it yeah Prepping just uh <laughs> exactly just something to keep an eye on i think um and something not to rule out um but yeah i mean there's a lot of decisions to be made in the summer i think in terms of He's probably not got the technical qualities to play in our, in our Tesla system long term. But again, it's like, how do we best protect this asset? How do we best, you know, get what's best for the club, get what's best for, for us, first and foremost? Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, this is our player and, you know, we've got to do what's best for us and, you know, and also what's best for him. A hundred percent. But yeah. Okay, talking point number two. So uh, uh, there was a discussion on the Arsenal Vision podcast, which I think was fascinating, and they didn't quite go into as much detail as I kind of wanted them to, really, because I think it's a it's a really interesting topic to discuss, and it's around the idea that with obviously the Qatar World Cup coming up, which will be in the middle of the season, with the disruption because of coronavirus, with the lack of preseason, with the players playing the Euros this summer, um, there's going to be a lot of football. There's a lot of injuries. Uh, I think Liverpool have lost something like a thousand and something days uh, overall uh, through injuries this season in terms of you know player days that they could have used. Um, Arsenal actually, interestingly, second bottom. I think it was something like three hundred. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think in terms of what I'd like to discuss is there's been an idea that the the game has been going in a way of kind of power and pace for a long time in terms of you know strong athletic. Uh, you look at Haaland, you look at, you know, that Liverpool midfield, you know, just getting three essentially runners and people who can do the athletic work and will outwork you in a game and outrun you in a game. And, you know, it's not to say that the technical side of the game is gone. I think it's just being um, uh, kind of differently prioritised. And the idea that someone can be, you know, fast, strong and quick is kind of the, you know, the athletic side of football has massively increased in the last number of years. You look at the types of players who succeeded, the types of players that the big clubs are signing, they're players who, you know, especially, you know, you look at like defenders, defenders now need to be quick. They need to be, need to be not only strong and good in the tackle, but, you know, as well as technically proficient, but quick uh, and that's been a big, you know, uh, the, the top defenders, you know, look, look at Upa Meccano, you look at, you know, Alfonso Davies. These are guys who are rapid. They are rapid. Um, and, and I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting kind of shift in football. But I wonder now with these next few seasons and with the rise of Manchester City playing a slightly more possession based style of football, I wonder what your thoughts are on firstly, whether this benefits Arsenal because of the kind of player profiles we have, i.e. this kind of maybe that there is a a shift or a benefit in playing a slightly more possession-based, less athletic, less tiring style of football. 
um, than the kind of the Gergen presses or the Jurgen presses, uh, than the you know the 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 sort of the the Leipzig uh, the you know Atlanta kind of you know the, the rises of you know really par- fast powerful teams we've seen in the last couple of years. Other than those, would it be beneficial for Arsenal to play a bit more of a possession based style of football to play a um, a team who okay maybe isn't as massively uh, doesn't press as much. There's been a huge d- decline. If you look at the pressing numbers across Europe, there's been a huge decline this season in in like intensity of press as well as um, in terms of um, amount of pressing going on. Um, and I think that suits the players in terms of you know fatigue. But I wonder then who benefits from that, and is it as I think we're seeing a, a team like Manchester City, teams who of course have huge squads, but also players play who, technical who styles of football play technical and also it's and another thing almost almost linking on to the Guendouzi thing it's like players who aren't going to run with the ball at their feet they're going to use the ball the, to make the run if that makes sense as in the ball moves and the player doesn't have to move as much and it just reduces the physical stress with all these games coming up I wonder whether we're seeing that yeah just it, it's, it's slightly you know get the klaxon out warning but Conjecture I ahead. think I wonder whether that's yeah yeah. It's an interesting topic. It is an interesting topic. And I think because every you're looking at Liverpool. Liverpool have got injuries in certain players and have had a drop off, you know, this season probably because of the way that they play football. It's unsustainable. Liverpool's yeah, it is it is fully unsustainable. There was always going to come a point where they had to take their foot off the pedal and rest because they they went full pelt at it for three seasons and with all of the games coming up like you say you know we've got the Qatar World Cup we've got the Euros we've got lots of things everything is cyclical and I think that we're just seeing a change in cycle you know with Jurgen Klopp you know it's obviously been reported and come out that this is his last contract at Liverpool uh, I don't know when it ends. It might be 2025 but um, or 2024. But, and that could also be bullshit. You know, he could sign another deal and be there till 2030. Who the fuck knows? But I think teams who focus on a physical brand of football and on outrunning, outworking, will never have very, very long-term success. It will be short term. They'll be very successful for two or three seasons and then they'll drastically fall off the pace because, and you know, we've had the conversation on it. Well, we've never really delved into the conversation, but I think there is a massive conversation for doping in football. You know, Liverpool have got something like 20 out of a 25 man squad registered as asthmatic, um, which is something like 150 times the national average when comparing a group of uh, men in their age range to have asthma. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying they are doping again. I'm I'm just saying that they are this, these are two facts that, that could lead you to believe that they might be (laughs) trying not to get sued here. Trying not to get sued. Alleged. Um, (laughs) Alleged. Um, And then you're, you're seeing the transformations of people that go to Bayern Munich and that go to Real Madrid. And now look, There is also something to be said that when you're working with the best trainers in the world and you're working and this is your job, you are going to naturally, and if a club asks you to put on muscle, you're going to naturally do that. Sometimes it just happens at a very, very rapid uh, pace that makes me go, ooh, that looks like somebody's taken a few anabolics. Leon Goretzka ballooned within the space of about six months. Yeah, crazy. But there is always going to be a physical decline in those kind of teams. Whereas possession technical based teams tend to, well, I think it's all, that's also kind of to be said about Arsene Wenger. I think that this idea that power and pace has, has only just come along is, is bullshit. You know, we had, no, I don't, I don't don't think it's just come along, but I think, I think the, it's been in favor for a little while. I think you're right about it being cyclical. I think the two things is like a a team that focuses just on its physical side is going to, is going to burn out. But a team that focuses on its technical side might get worked out as in, in terms of, you know, other teams might work out what they're doing. So it's, it's finding that balance. And I think, you know, teams have always wanted to outrun each other, but I think especially recently, especially with Liverpool, 
uh, in the Premier League. Teams have been pushing towards that. How do we become the most high-pressing team? Watch, Go and watch Liverpool 4, Crystal Palace 0. That is a team that cannot sustain that level of pressing. It, it's unparalleled. And that has been the, the gold standard for a little while. And now are we seeing that shift? Yeah, I think we are. And I think that technical teams might have the, the limelight for the next two to three seasons. And um, great. I think to create a successful a dynasty, for example, if you wanted to create a dynasty in a league moving forward, you need to kind of do both. You need to have very athletically able. And also, I don't think that's to say that, um, again, just going back to Liverpool, not all of their players are just pure athletes who are going to run, press and defend. Trent Alexander-Arnold is the worst defensive right back. Horrifically bad. But is one of the best creative passers in, in the game. Unbelievable with the ball at his feet. So what Liverpool do is they press around that and they have workmen-like midfields or attacks that protect certain players in that team. So they can be defensively deficient. Um, and I think maybe it is about doing both. It's about having players with a lot of technical ability who also can be physical, that can press a lot, that can... And it's it's almost, you need to be able to do, I think probably moving forward, the most successful team will be somebody who is brilliant technically, but can do 75% of the physical workload that a lot of these teams have been doing. You know, 75 to 60% of the pressing of a Liverpool whilst being the best technically proficient team in the league. Because at the end of the day, with one pass, you can break a press. With a single with a single good pass, you can break an entire press. So if you are able to combine those two things, you could really create a dynasty and really create something that, you know, has the best of both. Whether that's possible, who knows? I just think that it's, I think, it's like you say, everything has its moment in the limelight. And I think this is the power and pace and the physicality moment. And then it will go back to to technical ability. And then it will go back to physicality. Because what teams do is they try and beat what's around them. So City will have seen that Liverpool are this. uh, And, you know, they're this physical presence who press well in it. So City are just going technical. And they're going, okay, well, we'll just outpass you. We'll just, you want to press us? We'll just knock it over your head. And then what? Liverpool will do, we'll go, okay, well, we will just do this then. We'll sit back. We won't let you pass around us. And then we'll hit you on the counter. It's like we had a very um, technically proficient style of football. And then Jose Mourinho came along and absolutely um, broke it with um, with counter-attacking football. In, in a brilliant way, because he went, well, if I don't let you pass around me and I just let you have the ball in my final third... And then I absolutely smash down the wings and just beat you 1-0. Brilliant. It is just this, this cyclical thing that I think people forget that, that we were doing this 10, 15 years ago. And there was a shift and there will be another shift and it will continue to shift. What Arsenal just need to try and do is be the team making the shift rather than being behind the curve. Because I think one thing that we missed was being ahead of the curve in in kind of but power I wonder, dynamics, I wonder whether, I wonder whether, well, yeah, exactly. And you know, we, I don't think we've necessarily. Again, these things are very quick, and it's 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 difficult to have like a really granular conversation around these because you have to look at every team as a case study. If we're talking generally, yes, okay, this has been a trend in football, and Arsenal haven't really kept up. But I wonder whether this new general, if there's a general trend, general trend of you know Manchester City that style of play, the possession-based, using the ball, working the ball, positional rotation, if it, you know, if it allows players to to exert less physically, especially in a time with massive fixture con- con- uh, congestion, I can't speak, I wonder whether Arsenal benefit from that because we are a team who likes to play with the possession. We are a team who has, you know, obviously Arteta has worked under Guardiola and will know loads of those principles. So I just, yeah, I, I was slightly excited by that prospect because I think it's, it's certainly a possibility that, that that will happen over the next couple of years. And, you know, these players are playing so much football, so much football. And, you know, 
it's unsustainable. So at some point, players will break down. We have seen, you know, a lot of injuries this season, um, a lot of high-profile injuries, of course. Um, there's some debate of whether the stats are up or down or right or left or whatever. But I think, you know, we can see teams dropping off in the intensity of the games. It could be, of course, without, you know, fans and stuff like that. But yeah, I just wonder whether if we get our shit together, we could benefit from it. But yeah, it's it's be fascinating to see how football develops over the next few seasons. And, you know, a team like Manchester United who've kind of gone all in on, okay, we'll get Scott McTominay, we'll get Rashford, we'll get, um, you know, Greenwood, you know, these players who are quick and powerful. Um, you know, see how they how they adapt to that again. You know, it's 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 we'll see. It's it's really, really interesting. Um yeah. Talking point number three. So there's been some suggestions this week that in a similar style to uh rugby, the referees might get mic'd up. Um they obviously are mic'd up already, but as in the mic being, you know, transmitted to the broadcaster. Um, I have to say I'm not crazily in favour of it, but I would, in contentious moments, like to hear what's being said. I think sometimes what happens is you get the referee's perspective, i.e. you don't the players aren't mic'd up and you're not never gonna mic up the players. So you you don't hear what the player's being said, you just hear sort of like and the referee really clearly. So I, yeah, it doesn't really provide you with a massively balanced, like nuanced understanding of what's going on the pitch. However, in VAR decisions, I would like to hear what's been said or what's being said. You know, we could kind of pick up on there, um, or, or or just in contentious moments. I I think it's important, and again, another thing about accountability. I think the biggest thing for me around the the kind of the referees and the 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 controversy around VAR this season and all that sort of stuff is the lack of accountability it's the lack of the i always forget what it's called PGMOL coming out and saying hey th- we made a mistake this happened it's the lack of and and in public platforms you know sometimes they might release a statement on their website but no one's going to get that you want to come out on Sky or BT after the game with a representative and say hey this is the thing or we've had a statement through from PGMOL Jake Humphreys or or uh, Dave Jones reads out, we've had a statement through, this is, you know, this was incorrect. Wait, you want some accountability and you want some 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 kind of uh, synergy between how the, 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 the football-going fan or the football-watching fan receives information, whether it's miking it up, whether it's having players coming out at the end, uh, sorry, referees coming out at the end, whether it's how you have a, a representative giving interviews, whether you have statements. I don't know. I don't have the answer. But what I would say is my biggest thing is that a lack of accountability that the referees yeah, and face. The, yeah. the PGMOL face. And I think it, and again, we've we've kind of discussed this on this podcast before. It seems to be in aid of allowing the referees to have this kind of all um, all-knowing thing. And I kind of describe it like, you're a, if you're a parent, right? When your kids four, you you know you forget something for them. They don't know. They don't have that information. So you you know you could. I think you think you probably should apologize to them. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to pick you up from school or whatever it was. But like you just you know the kid doesn't know, so you can kind of get away with it. When the kid is fifteen and has all the information, or like you have an adult child and you make a mistake as a parent. You lose so much respect for your parent if you don't see them taking making the mistakes and the, uh, or taking accountability, taking responsibility, for, uh, yeah, responsibility for the mistake because that's what a human should do, right? Mm-hmm. And the point of that weird metaphor is like when when the kid, when the fan now has all the information, we have all of these angles, we have all of these replays, um, replays, and and we have all of this data, and you know we can see it on our phones and we can understand it the the media space has changed the child has grown up and the parent has to take responsibility and go do you know what hold my hands up that was a mistake and you have to set up new parameters and boundaries and go hey this is this is the deal i made a mistake that's okay or next week i didn't make a mistake because look at this blah blah blah, blah. i didn't forget to pick you up from school you were going to walk home whatever it was it's it, you know you we need accountability and we need a, a clear process in football, for example, if a manager sells a player and it seems like a strange decision or a manager has a bust up on the training ground, they face a press conference and they go, hey, this is what happened. Here's my side of the story. 
I'm not sat here saying everyone has to agree and go, yeah, every decision is going to be correct and every decision, you know, has to be, um, every every perspective has to be right or wrong. But the point is, as I say, it's the accountability. That's the most important thing. However we get there, I don't mind, but I just want some more accountability. Referees act like they aren't human. They act like they are above everyone. They are gods but then also want the luxury of being afforded this human error. It was a mistake, blah, 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 um, kind of catch 22. If you want to play these cards that, oh, you know, we're only human. We're just people doing a job. Then act like it and take responsibility. You don't get the best of both worlds. For me, there are a few very simple ways to kind of fixing the referee kind of, um, crisis that's going on right now one is miking them up not for all moments because like you say i think that there's just a lot of discussions that don't need to be had but we should be able to hear the conversations between the ref and stockley park at all times we should also be it should also be able to be backtracked like for example when luke shaw came out and said that the referee said to him that he couldn't give the handball because he was worried about Um, what would come out in public that should be something that should be accessible by premier league teams to go back and say this is what was said this is not good enough this person needs to face retrospective action and referees need to or a representative like you say of the refereeing association needs to and I, i personally i would say the referees need to face press conferences in future and be asked these questions Because players are asked these questions. Managers are asked these questions. Everyone else but referees are asked these questions. So they're kind of my three fixes. One thing that I also think needs to change is this idea that VAR can only intervene if there is a clear and obvious error. The issue is the wording behind that. Every error, if you can see it, is clear and obvious. If somebody's given a yellow card that should have been a red... And you think, well, it's not really that clear to the referee. If it's clear to you, it's a clear and obvious error that they've made. You have to intervene. That's another thing that I think needs a bit of a shake up. And then the final thing is the rules of the game. There needs to be, before next season, or I think all of these things for me need to happen. You know, the, what I mentioned about the recipe might up and then. But there needs to be a solidifying of the rules of the game. There needs to be a, if you are five inches if if part of your body that can score a goal is five inches past the final line of the defender then you're offside not a it's a fingertip there needs to be clear rules and reg because the issue is is we've evolved the technology but we haven't evolved the rules same thing happened with the offside rule people hated it at first but Mm, because we evolved yeah and the pass back rule but because we evolved with the rule and we evolved with the times, uh, we we got used to it and we now have, have this system. We just haven't done that evolving yet. What we've done is we've introduced this brilliant new technology, but we're then putting it in contentious situations because technically, if you are a toe offside, you're offside. I'm not saying that it should be called as offside, but by the current letter of the law, you are offside. What needs changing is the current letter of the law. And... Like moments with the Callum Hunter Adoy handball. That should never be a penalty. Both players bring their arms up to jostle each other to try and win the ball moving forward, and it hits his arm. He's not deliberately put his arm in it's in a natural position, you know, and the letter of the law is if the if your arms are in a natural position and the ball strikes the arm, it's not a penalty. Both of them have their arms up to jostle each other. That's natural for a football game. The hand strikes, if the ball strikes either of their hands, it's not It's not a penalty, it's not a free kick you play on. So I think if we involve all of these changes, we will see a massive revamp in in one, decisions being made. I think we'll reach the correct decision more often, more often than not because there is no proof at the moment. There is no, there, you can't hear what they're saying. You can't hear what Stockley Park are saying. So for example, if Lee Mason goes to the and Lee Mason's just the first referee that came to my head goes to the monitor 
and VAR are telling him it's no penalty. And he goes, no, I can see it on there. It's a penalty and gives the penalty. We should be able to hear the discussion. And we should be able to hear VAR saying, no, I've got seven angles on this. It's not a penalty. And we should be able to hear Lee Mason if he decides to go, no, I think it's a penalty. I'm giving a penalty. Mm. Because then and you they can, can also, yeah. Because then you can go and you can say, well, he's not done his job properly. He's decided to, to take it on himself to make a decision without all the information, he will face mm. retrospective action. Yeah, there's a there's a clip. It's so right, and I think you've spoken really well on that. Like the there's a clip from a Liverpool Spurs game where you can hear the referee having a conversation with the linesman. It's like it's not mic'd up, but it's subtitled, and someone's like filmed it really close. And he just he doesn't know. He's like, oh, I don't really know if it's if you know it's like it did it cross the line or did it did it you know was it an offside or whatever the decision was and he was just like do you know what i'm just going to award a penalty he didn't have he didn't go like well i haven't you know he said i haven't got enough information but you know what i'm just going to award the penalty i was like what the fuck man if that was on a if that was on sky sports and that was in the game there would be an outrage absolute outrage how the fuck can you just wait then you know i understand at that point he didn't have var i don't think Uh, it, it was like two or three seasons ago you know, if that was mic'd up and we could hear that conversation, there's no way he's going, do you know what? I'm just going to award the penalty. It's like, what the fuck? So, you know, and, and these guys... All of these big decisions, you need to be able to hear what's being said for moments like this. And it is exactly that. It is exactly, he doesn't want to lose face. He doesn't want to be, do you know, I don't know. Let's wait for the VAR. Now we have that technology. We have to advance the rules. We have to. Mm. Otherwise we're... And we have to advance the referees because there is so much arrogance in that. There's so much arrogance in saying... Do you know what? I'm not really sure, but I trust myself more than I trust VAR, so I'm just going to give a penalty. There's so much arrogance in that statement and in that ethos. This technology is here to improve the game. And whilst, okay, there might not have been the technology in this particular incident, that technology exists now. If you are not 100% sure in, and I think there is also a real need to kind of have a clear... Um, modus operandi about when VAR is used. It should be used in all game-changing moments. The awarding of a penalty, the decision of a red card, and um, like a goal. All of these things. Like an offside for a goal. There should... And and in those moments, if any of those three things happen and you have a suspicion that there might have been an offside or you're not sure whether it's a penalty, you go to VAR and VAR rules the decision. The referee does not get to... Because if the referee does not have... It should be a discussion and the VAR sends the, the angles down and go, this is the angles, we think it's a penalty. There's um, This has been going on in rugby for a long, long time. And there's a, there's a famous clip um, of... The referee just asks VAR, is there anything that you can see that means I cannot award the try? And they go, no, there's nothing I can see. So it goes, so I could award the try. They go, yes, it's a clear discussion. They award the try. It should be that. The ref should first check and go, hi, guys, have you been watching replays? Is there anything you can see in the build up to this goal or in the build up to this penalty or at this contentious decision that means that I cannot award this or whatever decision? And if they say yes, come over to the monitor. There's something we need to show you. They go over to the monitor and they have the discussion about it. The issue is, is we've implemented something and given no clarity about it. We've given these people a new toy and not told them when to use it. We need to tell them when to use it. We need to tell them how to use it. And if they don't do that, they need to face retrospective action, just like a player would. If a player makes a horrific mistake, it might ruin his career. And he might never play for that club again, you know. Or if you're Mustafi, that you moment, do it and then you just get picked next week yeah. and do it again. But that that Gwendouzi moment where he grabs Neil Morpai's throat pretty much ended his Arsenal career last season. And he's now having to rebuild that faith and rebuild that trust. Referees might just have to go ref in the championship for a week. That's the issue. Bars. Adams has spoken. Mic drop. All right, Black. Blad, all right, Blad. <laughs> Fucking hell! I need some more sleep. I need to start watching GeoGuessr. That's my problem. Ugh. Yeah, man. Uh, pleasure as always. As always, my friend. As always, I'm, I'm going to keep this top on. I'm going to know that you're also wearing the same top. All Just, day, mate. Know, all day. Pod connection. All right, mate. 
Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Points. Uh, we will see you after the Burnley game on Saturday. Burnley game. Also, just a quick, um, we are now starting to film some TikTok-specific content. Uh, so if you guys could pop over to TikTok, give us a follow, give us a like on our new videos, all of these things, that would be brilliant. So, um, yeah. We'll see you there. Cheers, guys. See you there, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Different Knock podcast. Please hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon and buymeacoffee.com. Find us on Twitter at DiffKnock and visit our website, thedifferentknock.com. Thanks. Sports Social Podcast Network.